Our Father in heaven, I ask that you would be our teacher this evening, that you would save us from ourself, that you would make your Bible to be easy for us, and we ask for the gift of your Spirit in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let me give you a little good news. When my wife and I flew here on Tuesday, we left a team of student call porters in Texas, a dozen of them there, 13 workers and two other leaders, and uh, they just kept working while we've been here. And this is the third day they've worked since we left, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. In these three days, they've sold $5,500 worth of paperback books at $1 to $10 a lick, sometimes 15 that amounts to a lot of books. And uh, they're going to work again on Sunday. And then Heidi and I will join them Sunday evenings. We'll be with them again for a good chunk of the summer. Good things are happening in the work. The students are knocking in North America. I just, not just my students, but students in general are knocking seven to nine million doors every year. Seven or nine million doors isn't seven or nine million people. That's more like 20, 25 million people. It's just a beautiful thing happening. It wasn't happening when you were a child. It's a new thing. It's a development, and you should be thankful like I'm thankful. A little bit more news, but this is much older. I told you last, or last evening that my wife and I have been church planting for seven years, Part of our church planting program was to sell books in the town we were trying to raise up a church in. But you can't do that like every month. If you knock on someone's door more than once a year, they begin to build up a, uh, a different type of prejudice against you that's worse than the original type. And so we would canvass it about once a year. And one of the ladies we met there was named Jennifer. Jennifer bought Peace Above the Storm, that's Steps to Christ, kind of a deluxe edition of Steps to Christ. She purchased it, and someone asked her if she'd like to take Bible studies. She said yes. So we began to give Bible studies to her. You know, she never did open that book. It just sat there in her house. She didn't read it. While we were giving Bible studies to her, her live-in boyfriend, the, the father of her little girl, found another woman and left her. And uh, the turmoil that caused Jennifer caused her to lose interest in the studies. Maybe some of you can understand how that would just kind of overwhelm a baby or not yet born interest. But before that happened, before the boyfriend left, Jennifer's mother and sister, Sharon and Destiny, had visited her by coincidence maybe, providence, yes, during one of the studies, and they liked what they saw. They wanted studies too. So when Jennifer went through her darkness, her mom and sister continued taking studies that had originated with Jennifer. Destiny and Sharon were baptized into the Seventh-day Adventist Church, partly through a contact from someone who bought a book and never read it and started studies and then quit them. In other words, what we were trying to do didn't work out exactly the way we thought it would, but did it work out? It worked out for the benefit of Sharon and Destiny. You know, the turmoil that Jennifer went through didn't last forever. And eventually, as she saw the change in her mother and her sister, she resumed Bible studies. 
And today, Jennifer is a baptized member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And now she's finally starting to read that book. (laughs) Finally starting to read it. I'll tell you more about church planting tomorrow and the next night. Tonight, the title of the uh, talk, as is in your bulletin, is a strange word. I coined it, anti-hermeneutics. You don't need to learn that word. It won't be useful to you in the future. Um, You won't find it in the dictionary. But hermeneutics, that's just a fancy word for correct principles of Bible interpretation. That is, when you talk about someone's hermeneutics, you mean what are his principles for how to interpret the Bible? Uh, William Miller famously had a set, a good set of principles for how to interpret the Bible. How many of you are at least vaguely familiar with William Miller's principles of interpretation? I see like maybe 25 hands, something like that. One of his principles, just a beautiful one, is that when you come to a, a prophecy, we should understand it in a literal sense unless context demands or common sense demands that it be understood figuratively. You know that principle is very helpful? Can I explain to you how helpful it is? Do you know that the seals, the first six seals are metaphors or symbolic, but the seventh one, or the sixth one, excuse me, and seventh are, the sixth one is literal. What a funny way to talk. Let me start that sentence over. Five seals are symbolic, but the sixth one is when the sky opens up like a scroll and the stars fall and people call for the mountains to fall on them. It's a literal picture. When you come to the uh, seven last plagues, you have the first five are literal, but the sixth one there talks about uh, frogs, the spirit of demons coming out of, have you read that there? You talk about this. It's in a metaphor. And when you go to Daniel chapter 11, you have this very literal delineation going on right from the beginning, but when you get far enough into it, you come to the daily and the abomination. The same symbols you find in chapter 8. And what I'm trying to say to you is that it wouldn't be sensible to say that every prophecy is either all literal or all symbolic. That just doesn't hold for really any of the major prophecies in Scripture. But what was Miller's principle? Take it literal unless common sense or context demands that you take it figuratively. And I just recommend that to you as a good idea. Miller's principle. An anti-hermeneutic is a bad principle. A, A foolish or false way to find truth that will not lead you to truth. And I have on the board up here written an illustration. It's just so small you can't read it. That's good because it would just make you nervous anyway. But I'm going to tell you what it says for those of you who aren't in the front row. This morning at breakfast, my wife and I were talking about the work that I'm doing here, trying to oppose some fanaticism. I was thinking about moving this so you could see it, but it just doesn't matter because you can't read it anyway, so I'm just going to leave it just as it is. And I was trying to explain something to her, and so I asked Heidi to pick two Old Testament stories, any two. And she said, Job and Esther. That's what she said, Job and Esther. So I did something for her. I drew two lines. And I labeled one Job, and I labeled one Esther. And then I just thought for a few seconds, and I began to draw parallel lines. I noticed that Esther started out poor, but when she got married to the king, she became rich. And of course, Job was born as a baby, so he's born poor, and we know in the book he became 
rich. And then, you know, Job had some bad friends. And Esther, Haman wasn't exactly a good guy, was he? Even though he tended to like her in some ways. But there was a point when Job was vindicated, and Esther herself, she ended up having a vindication of her rights and principles and standing before the king. And then Job was given twice as much as he had before. That's in Job 42. And Esther, there were two days of retribution that the Jews had when they could get revenge on their enemies. Isn't that amazing? No, it's not. It's not amazing at all. I could have done that with any two stories. And I could do it with two stories from two of you if I knew, knew you properly. I could do it with two presidents of the United States. I could do it. This is nothing, has nothing to do with Bible study. This is speculative work. This is to Bible study what imagination is to reality. Let me explain to you for just a minute. I don't really know that Job was ever poor. For all I know, he was born rich. I just made that up because it fit the parallel pretty nicely. Job had three friends. I don't know if you'd say Haman really was a friend of Esther, although he wanted to get something from her. And it's not like Esther was really vindicated. She was never really, was really accused of anything, but it worked out well for her. But vindicated seemed like a good word that would sort of fit both situations. If you pick the right word, it makes it easier to make a parallel. Esther didn't end up with twice as much of anything, but at least the word two, you could put the, word, the number two into both stories. Job had twice as much, and there were two days, and so I found the number two. But you know, numbers as small as two are found in many places. So are numbers like three, four, five, and six. You can find them just wherever you're looking. Those kind of numbers are common. What I'm trying to say to you is that drawing parallel lines is not a principle of Bible interpretation. It allows you to add a level of subjective, you can add a part of yourself to it to come up with something that no prophet ever intended. And... Um, if you just want to try me on this and take me aside sometime or this weekend, I'll let you do it. You'd name two stories for me and I'll make up two sets of fake parallels. But now let me take you one step further in this hermeneutic disaster. The bottom line here is labeled Hutef. You know that name? Anyone know the name Hutef? He is a famous false prophet in Adventist history. The one that started the movement known as the Shepherd's Rock. Initially, Hutef was a poor man that was a Sabbath school teacher, but eventually he had many followers. Unfortunately, after he died, there were, there were divisions among them. Certainly, some of them had to be false prophets because they accused each other. Once they divided, one group of the rod would say the other one was led by a false prophet, and they would make, you know, no matter, even if one of them is right, at least some of them have to be false prophets. And then if you follow the parallels here, you can see that this is where we are in the line because nothing else has happened. But if you look up here, you're going to see the next thing that's going to happen in history is Hutef is going to be vindicated. 
And then he's going to have twice the power in his message that was ever there before. Do you see how the Bible teaches in the story of Job and Esther the success of the movement known as the shepherd's rod? Can you see it? It's not there. And, and that's what I'm trying to tell you. Does anyone understand what I'm trying to say? I don't know if you really, if you really can see it. But I'm trying to illustrate for you that parallel lines, I guess I've said this three times, I'm just going to move off it. Does history repeat itself? History does, but let me tell you why history repeats itself, and that will help you to understand how to use, how to follow lines of prophecy in a proper way. History repeats itself because God doesn't change, and the devil doesn't change rapidly. And evil angels have about the same goals and purposes they've had for a long time. And wicked humans operate on about the same principles that they have since the Garden of Eden. And righteous men do about the same things and the same scenarios that they've been doing ever since Abel died. In other words, it's because there are so much in common from age to age in the major players that you find repetitive scenes in history. The great reformatory movements, for example, have parallels in each other. They tend to follow similar patterns. And wherever you come to a high level of piety, you're going to end up with a period of persecution. Have you read this in the book, Great Controversy? It talks right there about persecution in the first centuries. And I ask the question, why do the fires of persecution kind of burn low today? The answer is because we live in a period of low piety. And if piety rises to a new level where you are and where, if the work is going forward there, then the devil is going to lose control of his temper like he has every time in the past. It never has been in the devil's interest to persecute. He has a temper just like other people that have tempers do. And when he does it, he always loses, but he does it because he loses it just like you lose it if you lose it. Where persecution arises, that's because there has... I'm trying to explain to you why history repeats. I'm going to give you a couple more anti-hermeneutics, then we're going to have a Bible study, because I'm not sure there's really any food in what we're going over right now. I'm not sure really that this can nourish you in any way at all. I'm just hoping it will help you recognize poisonous food when you see it. Do you know the word etymology? Etymology is the study of how words came to have the meaning they have today. Word meanings change over time, and many times a very ancient practice can give rise to a word usage, and we can use that word today and just have no idea of where the word came from. Etymology is an interesting study. Etymology is a very poor way to study the Bible. Let me explain to you what people do that doesn't work well. You can take your Bible, look up a word. I'm just going to open up to a random place here. And I see this word synagogue. And I could look up the word synagogue and try to see where it comes from. Now, I happen to know something about this word. I didn't mean to pick a word I know something about. But it really, it's... That first part of the word means to put something together. And I could take that history way back until I found the origin of it. And I could say that the word synagogue here means something different than what it reads in my English Bible. I'm just recommending you don't do that. 
I'm going to see if an example comes to my mind so you can see it so easily in your English language, our English language. One's not flying in there, so I'll just tell you. Maybe you can think of one. When you write something today, when you use the word, for example, uh, extravagance, you mean what extravagance means in 2012. And you really aren't thinking about what extravagance came from 400 years ago when it was first used in Great Britain. Those ideas aren't in your mind at all. And so if someone does research in the word extravagance to find how the Norsemen were using it way back when, the the syllables or the ideas, and they say that's what you intended, they're just off base. It has nothing to do with what you're trying to say. You are trying to say extravagance. Ditto with Bible writers. What they wrote, they were writing for their time, the meaning of the words in their time. And truly, when you read a, a translation of the Bible like the King James or New King James, you're getting a good idea of what, the, of what was written in Greek or Hebrew. I'm going to try to say this simply another way and then be done with it. Don't pit Dr. Strong against eight or ten other doctors who helped translate the King James Bible in the part you're reading. I don't mean that Dr. Strong, the one who made the Strong's Concordance, I don't mean that he was a lesser a lesser scholar than they. I mean that Dr. Strong in his lexicon is giving you the whole range of meanings of the word. But those other translators who knew the language just as well as he, they were trying to find what the word means right there in that context. And uh, even Dr. Strong would not be happy if he could be resurrected right here and see someone using his lexicon to try to change the translation of a Bible and try to improve it. He would say, no, that's not what I intended. If you have questions about this, please ask me later because I'm wasting too much time trying to say the same thing over and over on this point. What is the good thing about a concordance or a lexicon? The concordance allows you to find other parallel passages on the same topic that you can read And the lexicon allows you to find other ways that word is translated so you could find other places where that Greek or Hebrew word is used. It really, it can be a very useful tool. But the best way to find a way to correct or improve your translation or your understanding of a passage is to find two or three good translations and read them at the same time. Would you like to have a list of two or three good translations? Let me just give you a list of a few good ones. I already mentioned the King James and the New King James. Another great translation is the Rotherham's translation. Rotherham, you never heard of that, but anyway, you could look it up. Another good one is Young's literal translation. And Webster's is a good translation. Young's literal is not, an, is not a good one for reading for your devotions, but it's a great one for studying because Dr. Young did not try to smooth over or, or rearrange or fix idioms. What does that mean? I mean, he just put a literal translation of what the words mean into English, and there are places where translators in the Bible had a terrible time understanding because their theology wasn't quite right. Can I show you one of those? Turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9.
Hebrews chapter 9 is one of the few places in Scripture that I know of where the translators were so boggled by what they were reading that they literally changed it to make it more sensible. The translators, I don't even want to condemn them here. Some of the things in the New Testament were written by fishermen, and they didn't, not all the New Testament is written with the best grammar. And uh, so there is a little bit of correction, even of tenses, even in some parts of the New Testament. But Paul wrote Hebrews, and he knew grammar pretty well. Hebrews chapter 9, and we're looking at verse, oh, let's look at verse 7. But into the second, and that would be second apartment of the sanctuary, into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. Is that how yours reads? Was not yet made manifest? But the Greek is in present tense. Is not yet made manifest. There's a difference between past and present. The Greek is present, is not yet made manifest. While the first tabernacle is yet standing or is yet in operation. The idea there is it has a standing, still has a standing. Verse 10, which is a figure for the time. You see the word then? The Greek word means now. For the time now present. What you had is the translators were trying to find some way to make this tense make sense to them because the Holy Ghost was signifying something and it made no sense to them that the Holy Ghost was trying to signify that you would not understand the most holy place message until Christ's work in the holy place was over. They had that idea just never could make any sense to them at all. And so they tried to fix it by adjusting the tenses. But if you read this in Young's literal translation, you would read the tenses just like I just read them to you. And then Hebrews 9 becomes a very Adventist passage. It says that when the God made the holy place and most holy place, the Holy Ghost was showing that you would not understand the most holy place ministry until the work in the holy place was over. Well, what an Adventist idea. When did we come to understand the most holy place work? Why Hiram Edson was walking in a cornfield soon after the work in the holy place was over. Just the very thing predicted by Hebrews chapter 9. How would you come to that? Much easier than by taking three or four years of Greek and Hebrew, though you could get to it that way. But what would be the faster route to get there? Compare several good translations. Young's literal being a literal translation that would be so helpful in many cases. I need to put a correction on something I said last night. I had, a, uh, I had an email from Pastor Kirkpatrick, and I so agreed with what he sent to me. We looked at Isaiah 28. The question there is, who will God teach? And there were some answers. Remember what the first answer was? Those that are weaned, right, that are weaned from human dependence, those are the ones that God will teach. And then you have something there about the way that God teaches. God teaches by here a little and there a little, line upon line, 
Really, the passage shows how God teaches. And the way God teaches, you think that might be a good model for the way you should teach? Might be a good model. But there are people that really don't understand Miller's rules of interpretation very well that really mess up this idea of a little, as in here a little and there a little. Miller, when he wrote about how he interpreted the Bible, he said that when he came to a passage he didn't understand, that he would try to read every, and then he used a big word, collateral, but what we would say would be parallel. He would try to find every passage on the same topic. So if he's studying Colossians 2, which talks about uh, a law being done away with, he would try to find every passage in the New Testament or Old that talks about a law being done away with. He'd read the parallel passages. In other words, he wanted to read enough of the passage to get an idea of what the prophet was trying to say. The devil would really like to to change your study habits from talking about passages to talking about words. Do you know, as soon as you come down to the level of talking about words, we lose our ability to resolve the, the issue by comparing passages with passages. Now, let me show you this. Look at 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 14. We haven't got to our Bible study yet. I'm still on the anti-hermeneutics, but I won't go over time. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 14. Of these things, put them in remembrance charging them before the Lord that they strive not about, what does it say? Strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. If we're going to talk about what does the Bible say about salvation, we can find passages about this and we can study them. But as soon as we begin to try to tear apart what that word in the Greek or Hebrew or even in English means, uh, the Bible isn't a dictionary. And uh, what does Paul say about that level of argument? Don't argue about words. It ends up destroying the faith of the believers. You see that in verse 14? Charge them not to let things go to that level. Enough of this. Let's have a Bible study. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, and let's look at verse 2. It says, grace and peace be multiplied unto you. Do you see through what means? Through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. I learned from verse 2 several simple ideas. One is that the amount of peace I have in my life today should not be a standard for the amount of peace I have tomorrow. Can you see that in verse 2? That peace should be increasing in my life. I should have an increasing peace. I read elsewhere in the Bible a peace that passes understanding. I want to have, and the amount of grace in my life should be increasing. And how do grace and peace increase? Why, on a plan of multiplication, in, in proportion that what I know about Jesus and his father. Look at verse 3. According as his divine power 
has given to us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. How? It says to the knowledge of Him that has called us to glory and virtue. The way that I get everything that I need in this chapter is through knowing the Lord Jesus. That sounds like what Jesus said, that this is life eternal, that they might know Thee. And then He talked about Himself, the one that the Father had sent. That's, that's the idea here. If I need grace, if I need peace, if I need to live a godly life, or if I want to get to heaven, everything I need to get for those purposes comes from knowing Jesus. Does that, can you see that idea, how it matches what we studied last night? When does truth affect me? When it has my attention. And when I'm thinking about Jesus, that's when I get more peace. If you find in your life that you don't have sufficient peace, you might try the simple formula of 2 Peter chapter 1. How, did, how is it that you get more peace? That'd be through a knowledge of Jesus. What is it that competes with that knowledge in my life? Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Second Corinthians chapter 10. Verse 5. Speaking about what we do with the spiritual weapons God gives us, it says that we should cast down imaginations. Other translations would say arguments or ideas. The, the idea here, imagination is not a bad idea for it. It's like the things you're thinking about, your thoughts. What has your conscious attention Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself, what does it say? Against the knowledge of God. I want to make this so simple. Why did God give me an imagination? Many ladies, many men have had questions like this, even if they didn't say it like that, because they found their imagination to be a corrupting influence in their mind. Their imagination would follow after pornographic pornographic pictures, or fly away into castle-building relationships so unlike the ones on earth. And they find their imagination corrupting themselves. Why did God give me an imagination? God gave me an imagination to make truth useful in my life. Do you remember I told you that truth affects you when it has your attention? But many truths would affect me more if they had a much broader part of my attention than what a theoretical idea can get. In other words, a picture really grabs my attention better than a theory. And if I can picture Noah's ark beginning to float and people banging on the outside, something about what I know about the story of Noah and the ark creates a stronger response in me than if I don't really picture the story in my mind. I was not at Calvary. I didn't see it. But God allows me to have a similar response as if I had been there. Have you read that in Galatians? Paul asked, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Christ has been evidently set forth, crucified among you? 
Has anyone read that? It's Galatians 3.1. That idea. In other words, Paul used their imagination so they could see Jesus crucified. And when they saw that, Paul expected that that would create a staying power, an enduring an endurance to their faith. And so he said, listen, you saw Jesus like that, then how are you so easily moving away? Let me read that backwards. If I don't want to move away, then Paul says, I ought to see Jesus crucified. He thought that would be a good solution. Does that make any sense to you, what I'm saying? So my imagination was given to me to be a tool to help me benefit from the judgment in heaven, for example. I am not there, but I know right now that names are being accepted, names are being rejected. That's serious. Because every one of those names is someone who's claimed Jesus as their savior or in some way acknowledged a moral authority in their life. The names being accepted and rejected don't even include the the faraway sinner who never even pretended to serve God, they're not investigated in this part of the judgment. So when we say names are being rejected, that's serious. By picturing that, my imagination accomplishes what God gave it to me for. But this chapter says, I need to get a grip on my imagination. I need to cast it down and bring every what into captivity? Every thought. God never intended that my imagination would be an out-of-control element in my life. Imagination, for example, was not given me to help me make up parallels. That's not its purpose. It was given to me to help me to benefit from truths that are at a distance, truths where I'm not present, but I can still relate as if I'd been there. I can picture them. Imagination has some other usefulness, usefulness too. It's designed to help you mechanical men with problem solving. Some of you could lay in bed and solve a mechanical problem in your mind without ever having actually to be there. The imagination is useful for problem solving, but if you want an interesting study, you could study about diseases of the imagination in the writings of Ellen White. You would find that we here in America, our imaginations are sickly. They are just, for example, if you think that no one loves you, you have a sick imagination. If you think people are out to get you generally, you have a disease of your imagination. If you think that to let other people take responsibilities will just mess things up, it'd be easier to do it yourself, that is a disease of your imagination. Even if it's true. I'm not making that up. Ellen White wrote to J.N. Loughborough and to J.N. Andrews, and she told them that the work was years behind because their imagination was diseased and they imagined the work going to pieces if they put weight on incompetent people. But she said, if you don't begin to put weight on these people, how are they ever going to develop competence? Really, your diseased imagination has put the work far behind and you can find that if you want to read about it. Do you, know, you don't know this website? Bible, D-O-C, BibleDoc.org, that's my website, and there's an article there called The Faculty of Imagination that you could read. It's all for free. Please, don't be afraid of the website. BibleDoc.org, and I'm not going to talk any more about that topic. I'm done with it. The imagination has a purpose. Now to Bible study number two. 
Look at Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2. We're going to look particularly at verse 7. I will declare the decree the Lord has said unto me. That is, God the Father has said unto me, Jesus, you are my son. This day have I begotten thee. What a verse. The Father said to the Son, This day have I begotten thee. Pray tell, what day was that? That's a fair question, right? Look at Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13 answers the question, What day was it? Let's start in verse 30. It says, God raised him. That would be Jesus. God raised Jesus from the dead, and Jesus was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. Look at verse 33. God has fulfilled the same unto us, their children, and that he has raised up Jesus again, as it is also written, what's it say? In the second psalm, you are my son, this day have I begotten thee. And as concerning that he raised him from the dead. Now, what an interesting idea. What did the father say to the son, you are my son, this day have I begotten thee? It was at the resurrection. What does it mean that, how is that true? Follow closely. The idea of being a son was not connected with the idea of a womb until the birth of Abel. Do you know that there were sons before there were wombs? For example, the book of Job talks about when the foundations of the earth were laid all the sons of God shouted for joy. You remember that? What did sonship mean back then? Don't answer, just listen for a moment. Jesus had an interesting conversation in John chapter 8. He was talking to people, and it says there around verse 32, it says he was speaking to those that believed on him. And what he said to them is, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciples truly. And you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And they said, we are Abraham's children. We have never been in bondage to anyone. Now, you read in your own time the next nine verses. I'm going to tell you what you're going to find. Jesus said, I know that you belong to Abraham's lineage genealogically, but you are Abraham's children. If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham." You are of your father, the devil, and the works of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning. He was a liar from the beginning. He's the father of it. When he lies, he does it of his own. Do you remember what it says in Genesis 3? 
God said he'd put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The serpent never had any seed. Genetically. When John the Baptist and Jesus spoke to the multitudes and they said that you are a brood of vipers, they weren't calling names. They were saying you are the children of the serpent. Let me just make this as simple as I can to you. You can see it in your Bible, Romans 8, 14. It says, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Sonship, long before Adam and Eve were created, was a reference to similarity in character. It was a reference to character. And that is the son is one who's similar in character. So when God makes Adam in his image, Adam is a son of God. And when Adam gives birth to a child that's like him, that is a son of Adam. Not because Adam has a womb. Adam doesn't even have a womb. But because there's a similarity in character. This is a big idea. That is, the Bible is full of this idea, and if you just understand it, you'll begin to see it everywhere. For example, this is why God gave circumcision to the Jews, to Abraham. It says this in Romans 4. God gave circumcision to Abraham to show that the blessing wouldn't follow uh, genealogy. The blessing would follow discipline because it wasn't just Ishmael and Isaac that were uh, circumcised. It was the entire uh, camp. The blessing was on everyone that submitted to the discipline. And then the children who didn't submit to the teaching of Abraham, were they part of the blessing? You know, it wasn't Esau, it was just Jacob. What was God trying to teach? Paul goes over all this in Romans, and I'm saying to you, I'm just trying to say it in more simple words. What God was trying to show is that the blessing follows the sons of Abraham, not the, not the genetic connections, but the character connections. So then, those that have the faith of Abraham are blessed with faithful Abraham. You are a son of Abraham if you do the things that Abraham did. Is this making any sense to you what I'm saying? Now, let me show it to you in connection with when Jesus became a son. Look at Romans chapter 1. Romans 1, looking at verse 3. It's speaking about Jesus. That's what Paul's almost always speaking about. Someday you should just take one of Paul's epistles and write down how many times he uses the name Jesus, Lord, Messiah in two chapters. And I think you'd find that our offerings in life are very much like those of Cain, they're Christless, that Paul really had something different than what we are doing or having or experiencing. Romans 1, verse 3, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. So Jesus was a son of David. People argue about whether Jesus had a nature of Adam before the fall or after the fall. I just think it's kind of a silly question. Because the Bible says that Jesus was a son of, of David, and David only had one nature. Does that make any sense to you what I just said? A son of David according to the flesh. But look at verse 4. And declared to be the son of God with 
power according to the spirit of holiness. How? What was it that showed that Jesus was divine according to verse 4? The spirit showed it, and how did the spirit show it? The resurrection showed the divinity of Jesus. Do you remember what he said? He said, I have power to lay down my life and power to take it again, this commandment I have received of the Father. In other words, Jesus is the only being in the universe, the unique Son of God, that has life unborrowed, underived, original. He's the only one who can lay down his life and take it again. He's the only one. When I am resurrected, it's going to be because someone else calls me from the grave. I can't call myself that way. So the Bible says Jesus is the first begotten from the dead. It doesn't mean that he's the first resurrected person. It means that he is the unique, the only preeminent one. He's the one that could resurrect himself, and that showed his divinity. That's the day the Father said to the Son, this day have I begotten thee. Please don't let anyone confuse you. Jesus is the Son of God because he's like him in character. And the reason that you fathers love your little boys is because God gave you a love to illustrate how he feels about Jesus. It's not the other way around. It's not that the Father loves Jesus because of some cosmic birth in ancient history. It's that you love your boys to help you understand the love between the Father and the Son, even though there never was a time when they were separate. I'm trying to inoculate you against a little fanaticism or error that has just made its way around, and maybe even some of you here have adopted it to one degree or another. But sonship is a reference to character, and Jesus is the Son of God because he is just like him. I think to fulfill the reason I was invited to come here, I probably should deal with a few more anti-hermeneutics. So let me just give you a few more faulty principles of interpretation. I'll call this the minority view. It works like this. The majority is always wrong. Therefore, since this issue is believed by the smaller number of people in my church, they must be right. It's a faulty hermeneutic. And let me just show you that in Scripture. Israel is smaller than the world. So yes, it's true, the majority is not right. But Korah, Dathan, and Abiram are smaller than Israel. And that proves the minority isn't always right either. Does that make any sense to you what I'm saying? You can't know you're right just because you're being persecuted and you're in the smaller group. That's what I'm trying to say. And if you've tried to land on truth by using that principle, you need to abandon it and look for something more substantial. Last night I dealt with the high documentation error. I just want to review it. It's not a new idea. But I think that what happens to new and newly studied Adventists often, I want to say this tactfully, so just let me think for a minute. 
Suppose that you are asleep in your spiritual life. That you're not studying the way you should. That you're playing video games even though you know you shouldn't be doing it. That when no one's paying any attention, you listen to things on the radio that you wouldn't want anyone to know you listen to. That you watch things on YouTube that if your children found out, you would never be able to say anything to them ever again about what they watch. Suppose that spiritually you're dead. And now here comes someone with fervor. And they have a message that is shocking and it wakes you up. And it convinces you that we're living near the end of time. And now that you realize that, that urgency moves you to do some things in your life. For example, aren't you going to stop looking at those videos and stop listening to that music? Aren't you going to like step up a bit and reform your life in view of the fact that you're facing an impending, an impending crisis? Good. Step up and reform your life and come in harmony with God's principles. But when you've made that progress, don't give the credit to the exciting message that came your way. The fact that it woke you up is not evidence that it's true. It's only evidence that you were asleep and that it was loud. And let me say this to you in another way. The devil preys on dead, sleeping Adventists and brings to them exciting error because he knows that whatever leads to you to reform your life and to study the Bible more, you're going to think it must be true. If it leads me to study, it can't be wrong. But yes, it can. I don't know a foolish heresy that's made progress yet that doesn't reform people. The foolish heresies, Brother Hutef really has reformed a lot of people. With his shocking, foolish error, he's led a lot of people to just give up their wicked ways of living. But the reason they fell for it wasn't because he had truth, it's because they were spiritually sleeping. Listen, if you're spiritually sleeping, you are set up to fall into a problem. Does that make any sense to you what I'm saying? And if something has come along, but sleeping people are not the only ones that are deceived. Look, turn us in your Bibles to Romans 16. I want to help you understand something about why some of the most precious people you know may have gone off into some of the saddest things you know about. Romans chapter 16 and looking at verse 17. Now I should wait for you. 16 verse 17. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark those which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. You've never heard anyone preach on this verse before in your entire life, I bet. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus, but their own belly. And by good words, what does it say? What kind of words? By good words and fair speeches, they deceive the hearts of who? The simple. Another word for that simple, you might say the uneducated. But I don't really mean when I say the uneducated that they don't have like graduate degrees. I mean that they aren't really studious or studied in the things of the Bible. 
or simple-minded people. There are people who have a valuable religion and have a simple mind. They serve needy people. They would do what you need when they say you need it. They would sacrifice their food or their coat if you were cold or hungry. Simple-minded people who are doing what they can to help Jesus. And Jesus, to save them, has given them the testimonies. Simple-minded people out here, you ought to read the testimonies. Because according to Ephesians 4, God gave the gifts to the church to save you from being washed around and and taken back and forth. They were given for that purpose. Simple-minded people don't need to be taken, but if they are not benefiting from the gifts given to the church like that, do you see what Romans 16 says about simple-minded people? What is it that deceives them? It's good words and fair speeches. Long ago in a time, long ago, in a place far away, uh, Martin Luther was um, in captivity. You've read about this in The Great Controversy, and if you don't remember it, you should read The Great Controversy again. And um, back home in Wittenberg, the devil pulled a stunt that he hadn't used in quite a while. He raised up some false teachers. They were even false prophets. They're from Zwickau. How many of you remember reading something about this somewhere at some point in your life, the false teachers? And uh, these guys were advocating help, helpful, accurate reforms. For example, they were saying that you should be baptized by immersion. Because at this point, Martin Luther was still in favor of infant baptism. He thought that was essential to wash away original sin. And these fanatics were advocating that. And they had some other useful ideas. They were advocating that you learn a trade and that you, you get a practical education. And they were even telling the people in the university not to be studying the classics and the Greeks and to get out and do something with their hands. You know, I'm all for some of these ideas. But these guys were demonic. It has never been beyond the devil to teach some truth. Typically, if he's going to reach people who are just really way out weird in their thinking, he can use just plain weird way out stuff. But if he wants to reach Adventists that at least have devotions four times a week, he can't use something way out there. He's going to have to use something that at least is somewhat, you know, it matches you. And so he does. And that's what Satan sent to Wittenberg was something that matched the Germans, some false prophets. Luther came running from his captivity. You know, he wasn't like chained there. He risked his life. He was under the ban of the emperor to do this and came to Wittenberg to oppose the false prophets. He convened a meeting and almost the whole city came out to hear him. Do you know what's shocking? He didn't even mention the false prophets. He had six sermons. People came to every one of them. He didn't mention them. What Martin Luther understood by the grace of God, by a mercy to his mind, is that the people were under a false excitement and what they needed was to be calm. And by opposing the thing in the wrong way, he would just create more excitement 
And under that excitement, this thing would grow. But as the minds calmed down, when people began to be able to think a little better, they began to see what they couldn't see before, and the prophets had to leave town to find some easier prey. We'll go back to the list. The fact that it causes tingles to go up and down your spine is not evidence that it's true. I remember the first time that my misunderstanding of this caused me problems. I was 18 years old, I was in North Carolina, and a man came there to give a Bible study to a group of unsuspecting people of whom I was one of them. His Bible study was fascinating. He showed me in Proverbs 8 that Jesus was born before the earth was made. He showed me Psalm 2, but he didn't show me Acts 13. Go figure. And he showed me quite, he showed me quite a number of other passages. And then he talked about how in heaven there had always been two beings that understood each other, but the two of them were one. But there is someone who wanted to be part of that. And he's the one that made up the idea of the Trinity. And when he said there were one, but there were two of them, but someone who wanted to be part of that, tingles went up and down my spine. And I began to think, wow, that's deep but it wasn't deep. It was just wrong. What was going on there is an automatic nervous response to a shocking piece of information. You can get the same tingles watching a horror flick. And I talked to a Mormon who said that her uncle had left the Mormon faith because he found out that the burning the bosom that he got when he was reading the Book of Mormon, he got the same thing on LSD. And it just really, do you know, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked and none can know it. The fact is that when you listen to a charismatic person giving any one of the foolish fanatical ideas, if they play their cards right and they tell the story in the right order and they use pause just well, they can make you tingle. I could make you tingle. It's no evidence that someone's telling the truth. I hope that will help you. In Councils and Diets and Foods on page 212, there is an interesting statement, more useful for theology than for cooking. But... um. What it says there is that there are some minds so constituted that they will accept anything that seems like a rigorous diet. And that such, she says they prepare the food, oh, I don't know if I can quote it just right. So I'll just tell you, she says something about cooking vegetables with nothing but water in that paragraph. And she says such cookery is not health reform, it is health deform. Those are her words right there, Councils and Diets and Foods, page 212. You know, it's not just in health reform that you have this principle. The idea that something is 
more rigorous, calls you to a higher standard, is not evidence that it's true. Many people around the world, many young people are joining Islam because they don't understand this principle. They went to a type of Christianity that just let them do whatever, and they found that Islam ended up calling them to a high moral standard. And so they went for it. Well, I'm glad they raised their moral standard, but there's more to finding out truth than that. The devil's not afraid to call you up to push you down. And I remember people falling for a false prophet named Sue, S-O-O, of a lady from, I think it was Vietnam, it might have been Laos, it's been a while. And uh, I talked to a few of them. The thing that made them very certain that she couldn't be a false prophet was the fact that she was translating some of Ellen White's books into that language, her language. And I'm just saying, no, that's no evidence. It has just never been beyond the devil to use truth. I think it'd be better if we just studied some more things from the Bible and then stopped. We live in a shaking time, and in the shaking time, no matter how hard you try to stop the shaking, you are not going to succeed. You can't stop the shaking. The superficial conservatives are going to leave the faith. It's going to happen, and you can't make it not happen. The best you can do is try to lead yourself and others to have a high level of piety personally. If we put away our sins, none of the wicked will understand, but the wise will understand. They that turn many to righteousness will shine as the stars forever and ever. I suggest a thought to you. There's no better way to inoculate yourself against fanaticism than to begin teaching the three angels' messages to your neighbors, friends, and co-workers. No better way. Because as you begin to give the real message to people who really don't know it, the meatiness and the power in that will help show the narrowness and the weakness in some of these other things. The satisfaction in teaching someone the truth for this time will help you see how impossibly ridiculous it would be to try to teach Job, Esther, Hutef parallels to a Baptist. It's not going to work out. It's actually difficult for him even to come to the point of understanding the Sabbath and what happens when you die. The message God has given us for the world is just right for the world. Brother Wolberg has a copy of a book I've written here, and at the website called audioverse.org, I have about 100 hours of lectures. I just mentioned that to you because I have an hour, two hours and 10 minutes left to talk to you for the rest of this week, and I just think there's a lot of material you need that isn't there. Let me recommend a couple things in particular. At that website, Audioverse, you'll find a series of Bible studies done at Young Disciple Camp called How to Study the Bible. It's a six-hour series on how to study the Bible. I just really think that it would be helpful to you, much more helpful than what I can do here and like, 70 minutes. And also it was done for people who are 14 years old so you'll understand it. Does that make any sense to you what I'm saying? And so I just think that's, it's a good series. Then at Kettle Falls, back uh, 
a random number of years ago, I did a youth emphasis series on how to learn to think for yourself without becoming rebellious. And as I recognize many of you are fairly conservative parents and uncles and aunties and grandparents, I think you might want to listen to that series to see if you could recommend it to your nieces, nephews, children, and grandchildren. Because there's an epidemic right now of people trying to learn to think for themselves and it not going very well. How many of you noticed this, epi- this epidemic of it not going too well as people learn to think for themselves? And that, anyway, I think you'd find that to be helpful. And then in the book that I've written that Steve brought copies here with him, he told me that tonight, um, I have an article, two articles relevant to the issue of Jeff Pippinger and his teachings. And I think there might be more of you that want the book than books that were brought by Steve. Do you know this website, lmn.org, Layman Ministry News? Jeff Rich carries the book, and he sells it cheaper than I sell it myself. So it's a great place to get it. I just recommend that. Who am I recommending this for? If you have had issues with Pippinger or Ballinger or Ford or with the Sanctuary Doctrine of Adventism or the Judgment Doctrine or if the daily is a big issue to you or if you like to make reapplications of prophecies, dual and double and triple applications or if you've ever wondered about the 1290 and 1335, you know, in the end of Daniel 12, or the 2520, there's a whole chapter in there on the 2520. I think it's the only book that I know about that deals with these things. And so I just recommend you get it if you fit into one of those categories. Now I feel much better. I will do no more shameless marketing of my own book the entire weekend that I'm here. The book is called Deeper. D-E-E-P-E-R, Deeper And uh, yeah, Jeff Rich has it, and there'll be copies here at the White Horse Media website. Oh, they're gone already? Oh, how did that happen? He just told me this two hours ago. So, well, Jeff Rich isn't out of them. And if he is out, he knows what to do to get more. So I recommend that. All right, six more tomorrow. So I'm just going to talk for a few minutes about Brother Pippinger directly, and then I'm going to close. Uh, Brother Pippinger and I live about 20 miles from each other, and uh, we've lived about 20 miles from each other for the last nine years. And uh, ironically, we've only met each other once, and it was like six hours from where either one of us live. Um, But we've carried on a vigorous correspondence. I mean, it has waxed and waned, uh, but uh, it's been interesting. So what I want to say plainly is that I think Jeff Pippinger is a false teacher who has come to false conclusions, but I don't think that it's valuable to make it an issue, a personal issue or a character issue that really theological issues ought not to be personal or character issues. That's not the best way to evaluate any theological issue because you can have, Judas could be telling the truth about who the Messiah is and, um, 
And he's right, even if he is a thief and a scoundrel, right? Let's talk directly about one of the issues in Revelation 10. Why don't you turn there to Revelation 10? Revelation 10, and uh, look at verse 3. You recognize in verse 2 that the book of Daniel is opened, right? And some of you know and some of you don't, but those who do know, when was the book of Daniel unsealed? Does anyone know when the book of Daniel was unsealed? 1798, and if you, if you didn't know that, audioverse.org has excellent lectures on prophecies of Daniel Revelation, and you could just do that and you would, you would get it. So that's when the book was unsealed. Verse 3 and it cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars, and when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. So in verse 2, the book is opened, and in verse 3, seven thunders utter their voice. And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write, and here comes the most disappointing thing in the whole book of Revelation. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered and write them not. How many of you have just always wondered what the seven thunders had uttered? And then you find in verse 5 and 6 the declaration that there will be time no longer. Now, when was the declaration that there will be time no longer? Someone who knows, when was that? I'll give you a hint. 1844. Now, when was it? That's right. That's when it was. That's when the declaration came that there would be time no longer, 1844. So we have, you know, I'm not proving this to you, and I don't have time to prove it to you, but I sure would do it if you're in my Daniel class, so if, or Revelation class. So if you want that, Audioverse has Revelation, BibleDoc.org has all my lectures on all these topics, like 45 articles on Daniel and Revelation, including one in Revelation 10. It could be proven, but there's not time for that, because I'm trying to get to one issue Namely, that the thunders utter their voice between the opening of the book and time no longer. Why, that would be between 1798 and 1844. That would be the time of the giving of the first and second angel's messages. So it's not surprising when you find what Ellen White says about the seven thunders. You know what she says about them? She says that they are a delineation of events that would occur under the giving of the first and second angel's messages. No surprise. We just figured that out without reading what she had to say, right? It's right there. You can just see where it is in the Bible. She says that when John wrote those things, uh, it was not best for the Advent people to know them before they happened. So John was told to seal them up. It's ironic that people are teaching today that the seven thunders are just now being understood and that they're a revelation of things going on recently. Listen, we should know what the seven thunders are about. Do you know on the first day of the seventh month there was a blowing of trumpets? And that blowing of trumpets, that feast of trumpets, it was the purpose to announce that the judgment was soon coming. Do you know what the first angel's message was for? It was to announce that the the judgment was soon coming. These seven thunders are a picture of the fulfillment of the Feast of Trumpets, an announcement that the judgment was soon coming. 
Well, here comes my brother Pippinger, and he's teaching that the seven thunders are the message for right now, that there's a relation between them and what happened on 9-11. And I just want to say to you, it isn't so. But if he was here, he would say, but it is so. And he would show you the tenses and what Ellen White says about this because she speaks about the seven thunders in present tense. But I would just say to you, hi, it would be really sensible for you to read two paragraphs together because Ellen White only mentioned the seven thunders in two paragraphs and they were written at the same time and they're always together unless someone tears them apart. And she puts she puts them in the right time frame in the second one, and the first one is written from the time frame of the Apostle John. So in that paragraph, John is sealing them up for future time. John sees, she says. She doesn't say John saw. She says John sees. So what time frame is she writing from? That's the time frame of John. So in the first first paragraph, as John sees, it's sealed for the future. In the second paragraph, as we're looking back, it was opened during the time of the first and second angel's messages. But you know from Hebrews 9, when were we supposed to understand the message of the first and second, of the holy and most holy place? Why, that would be when Christ's ministry in the holy place comes to an end. That's when we would understand it. Now I need to find one thing to share with you that is so simple that people here who do not understand anything about Daniel Revelation will feel like they had a benefit. And the Bible is full of good, meaty material like that. Turn in your Bibles to Amos 9. Amos 9, and uh, I'll give you extra time to find Amos. Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. So you're back about 36 pages from Matthew 1. Amos chapter 9. And we're looking at verse 9. For lo, I will command, and I will sift the house of Israel among all nations, like as corn is sifted in a sieve, you know how farmers do that? I mean, if you had a bunch of grain and you want to separate the chaff from the wheat, what you might do if you lived in the right age is first, well, first of all, you'd put it on the ground and stomp on it or have the cows walk on it or roll some rocks over it. You would do something violent to the grain. Then you'd pick it up and you'd throw it in the air. Then you catch it. And that's helpful because what happens as it comes down? Why, the chaff blows away, right? And as a farmer, you're throwing up 1,452 pieces of corn, and if you only catch 1,360, it's okay. What God says is that when he's sifting us, it's going to be like a farmer in some ways, but different in others. It's going to be like a farmer and that God is going to separate the wheat from the chaff, but how's it going to be different? Verse 9 Yet shall not, what does it say? The least grain fall upon the earth. Let me say that to you in simple way. The shaking was never designed by God to separate weak Christians from strong ones. 
It separates false ones from real, real ones. If you're weak, if you're a weak grain, a least grain, the shaking doesn't shake you out. It's if you're a fake grain, if you're a dead grain, that's when the shaking shakes you out. I hope you find courage in there, those that are simple and humble and worried, that if you hold to the Lord Jesus, hold to him with what you have, draw near to him with who you are. You remember that from last night? If we draw near to him, he will draw near to us. Then this violent shaking that seems to take away the strongest people, but no, they weren't the strongest people. They weren't even grains. The shaking doesn't take away weak. It doesn't take away strong. It takes away fake. What we want to do is make sure that we're purifying our heart. Many shall be purified and made white, but the wicked will do wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand. Amen. Let's close with that. Let's kneel for prayer. Our Father in heaven, I am sorry for how easily we have been led astray for how we have substituted such silly ideas for Bible study. And as many of us recognize our great weakness, would you please fulfill for us the promise of Amos 9? Hold to us so that not one of us would fall. I ask that you would show us the message that is simple and central and preserve us from those distractions that are complex and wrong. And I ask for this gift in the name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.